This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. We did the introduction to Job, and I'm actually going to jump off topic for a little bit. We're not going to talk about Job for a little bit. I'm going to talk about something else, and then we'll get back into it. So... For the last couple of weeks, I've just been kind of just thinking on the same thing. And the only reason I'm bringing it up in church is because it's kind of an open thing now where my, my cousin Cassie, she just, just got divorced. And so Dad brought it up in one of our Wednesday night sessions. And, you know, it's a prayer request. It's the thing we're all praying about and, and coming together like we did on that Wednesday night and praying together on it, and so I'm not going to get into all the intricacies of it because, you know, I don't think that's totally appropriate, but it is something that's been on my mind because it's personal with me and my family. I mean, it's not, it's not my household, but it's my family, so it's been something that's been on my mind a lot, and I've, I've had a lot of questions, and it's something that we basically spent the whole night, Wednesday night, discussing together in men's group, and I will give you the questions that I have had in my head just so you can see where I'm at, and then we'll go from there. So the first thing is, all right, so it's Cassie, she's my cousin, and Matt. And so what I've been thinking is, Matt, I always had a good relationship with Matt. He's been around for 13, 14 years, back when I was interning in Atlanta. He was interning in Atlanta. We had a great time, had fun hanging out together. And into their marriage, you know, anytime I went over to a birthday party or some family event or something, we'd hang out, you know, talk, whatever, spend some time together. We'd text each other sometimes. And so that's not really the big question that I have. I don't really have a question like, how did I miss this? How did I not see that coming? Because, you know, people act one way in public and in private another way. So, you know, that is what it is. Okay, but the next question that I do have is based off of what he was exposed to. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying it's the end of the road for Matt. Not at all. Don't get the wrong impression of what I'm bringing up here. I certainly don't think, you know, God, God is done with Matt or whatever. I mean, if you're not dead, God's not done with you. But I'm just giving y'all what's been going on in my head. So I'm just wondering, how could he have been exposed to so much good stuff and never really dive in and take part? I didn't think about this until they got divorced. I never once, okay, and let me tell you what Matt did. He was a sound guy, kind of like, you know, Briggs and Nate are back there. So he was always in the room if there was a message being preached. He was in the room during prayer times, worship times, preaching. Most of the time, my Uncle Bruce, he's the founder CEO of City Refuge. For, for, I don't know, however long he's been working for City Refuge, you know, nearly 10 years or something. Always in the room, heard countless sermons. Places like Jesus Jam he would go to, he'd be the one working the sound booth in the back, working the lights. So he's always in the room. Hearing other people speaking, Hearing other people give testimony, 
about how they used to run drugs from Florida to Atlanta, spent 30 years in prison, God saved them, right? Addicted to alcohol, alcoholic, God took the taste of alcohol out of my mouth. I couldn't drink it anymore because of him. Witness to that, witness to those kinds of things, witness to worship, witness to prayer, and always in the room for years and years and years. And I never thought about it until they got divorced, but I never, ever, ever, not that I can recall, remember Matt, you know, getting into prayer, head bowed, arm raised, getting into worship, getting moved by anything. I just, I've tried to think, I've tried to remember, and all I can recollect is that he would just be back there, working the booth, and just kind of head down, even if there wasn't a lot going on, not a lot of words needing to be put on the screen, just kind of back there, just kind of in the room. So that's one question I have. How could you be in the room with that kind of stuff going on, these kind of messages being preached, for years and years, and it doesn't sink in. And he's worked at City of Refuge for, I don't know, like I said, I don't know exactly how long. I know they've been married, were married for 10-something years. I think he worked there most of that time. How could you bear witness to what goes on at City of Refuge on a day-to-day basis? Hot foods being served to people who are starving and hungry. Witnessing ladies come into the House of Cherith program and be successful and graduate get back on their feet, lives turned around. You know, there were some failure stories. How could you see, see the failure stories where women were literally lost, they passed away, and how that hurt the people in the ministry to their very core because they were so sad and so loving, so compassionate, cared so much about trying to get people to succeed how could, you be, how could you be around all that? How could you be around the men's incarceration program, seeing men coming out of incarceration, being moved by God, and then serving, preaching, teaching, starting their own prison program where they go into prisons? How, how can you bear witness to all that? How can you bear witness to all the good works years and years and years? It's a good question, right? So that's two questions. Third question. Now, this will sound a little braggadocious, but I don't really care. How can you enter into a family like mine? Because I got a really great family, y'all. You know, I'm not trying to make anybody jealous, but it's just the truth of the matter. I am in a really great family. On my dad's side of the family, we come from grandma and papa, that's my grandparents. They knew each other for two weeks before they got married. They were two peas in a pod, doing God's work until the day they died. That's where we come from. And then you got Bruce and Rhonda, married, never divorced. You've got their kids, Cassie, okay. This is the outlier now. Kelsey and Gabe, I mean, they've been married for like two months, so if they got divorced, something's up with that. And then you've got Kenzie and Garrison. They've got two kids, one on the way. They've been together for about as long as me and Lydia have. No divorce there. Kaylin, Andrew, three boys, probably one on the way. I don't know. That seems rather typical. There's always somebody on the way over there. Married, not divorced. 
So that's Bruce's family. My mom and dad, my mom comes from divorce, but that's a different side of the family. Grandma's side of the family is buck wild, y'all. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Grandma could tell you all about it. But hey, I have I, I got more fun, have more fun with them because we're all just buck wild. But anyways, so my mom and dad, my dad comes, you know, from the non-divorce side ever. So there's that. We got Nick and JC. They've got a baby, one on the way, me, Lydia, two kids, not planning on having any on the way anytime soon. We're less than two years from being married, 10 years. No divorce there. Then you got my uncle Keith and my dad's sister, April, married, never divorced. They got a daughter. She's married, not divorced. Keith, my dad's brother, Letha, married, never divorced. Their daughter, Keely, married, kid. I don't know, maybe they got one on the way too. I don't know. Not divorce. No divorce anywhere. That's my third question. How could you be in a family like that and see, because not everybody, but everybody who's married seems to live a pretty good life, live right, love the Lord, fear the Lord, serve the Lord, and do all the right things. How can you enter into all that that I just laid out for you. That is a vast amount of stuff to be moved by. And it, it seems like it never really occurred. It never really sunk in. So, let's move on to Cassie, okay? Cassie is a daughter of the king. She knows that, she loves the Lord, she fears the Lord, she serves the Lord. She's been a good wife. She's been a good mother. She's got three boys, like I said. She works for City Refuge. She does the ministry, lives right, prays right, does the right things. When she was headed to finalize her stuff, she looked at her dad, Uncle Bruce, and said, I don't really understand. I know I've been a good wife. I know I've been a good mother. I don't get it. So... My question there is, how can that happen to you if you've been doing the right things, if you know you've been living the right life? All right, but what was chapter one of Job about? That's, that's what that was about. Job was an upright and righteous man. He did the right things. He prayed specifically against something, and it happens anyways. So where are we? What do we know? What have we figured out? All right, so I figured out three things. Briggs, you can put the first one up. Here's what I figured out. I know nothing, and I understand nothing. All right, you guys can have a good day. That's an easy cop-out for preaching. I'm going to pray us out. We'll go home. That would be a nice, you know. Full disclosure, I'm not qualified to be up here. I know that. I know nothing. I understand nothing. The only way we come to know and understand anything is through the Lord. On our own, we understand zero. We know zero. And if you want to feel low to the earth, and as one of Job's friends describes, God doesn't really describe us that way, but, you know, Job's friends come along, and they're, they're having a 34-chapter-long conversation about it which I think is funny. 
And, and at one point, I don't remember which one of his buddies says it, but he says, you know, we don't understand God. We are basically maggots and worms to God. God doesn't describe us that way, but he does. I think that's accurate. We're just low to the earth. We're dirt. We're nothing, right? Okay. So that's kind of my first point is that Job and his buddies, he's got three friends that come, and then a fourth guy named Elihu, he comes. And they're all trying to figure it out. Now, Job isn't sinning like we figured out. He's trying to justify what the Lord has done. He says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But at the same time, Job is obviously super down and out, and he's questioning God. He's not cursing God. But he's questioning God like, I know I've done the right things. I know I've been an upright and righteous man. What the world? What is your problem, dude? And his buddies are at the same time trying to comfort him. It says that they sat there for the first seven days just looking at him, being with him, and not saying anything for a week, just being there with him. So they're there to comfort him. But at the same time, they're saying, well, you must have done something, Job. Come on, this doesn't happen, okay, Job, what'd you do? Come on, just a minute, Job. So Job's like, no, I'm innocent, I'm, I'm this other thing. And then that goes on 34 chapters, y'all. We're trying to talk about it, figure it out for 34 chapters. I didn't even read the 34 chapters. I just like was skimming. I was like, oh, my gosh, they talk about it for this long? It's like. One of his guys says something for like two chapters, and then Job replies for two chapters, and then somebody else says something for a chapter, and Job replies for a chapter. And then finally, Elihu comes in. He doesn't come in until like the last two, I think chapter 36 or something. And he seems to say some all right stuff. He seems to have a lot of wisdom. He says some stuff that makes a lot of sense about how basically kind of in part, what God eventually comes in and says, how we don't understand him, we can't begin to understand him, he created all things, but at the same time, it takes him a chapter and a half to even get started. He spends like a chapter and a half saying, oh, you're about, you're about to really have your mind blown about what I got to say right now. I'm full of wisdom right now, I'm full of understanding, I got the answer, are you ready? Here it comes, and he repeats that for like a chapter and a half. So I'm like, why is he talking like this? Why is he talking so much? Just tell us what you got to tell us. So all this goes on for 34 chapters. It's chapters 3 through 37. They're going back and forth about figuring it out. God finally gets tired of all this, and he's like, I guess I better roll in on a cloud of thunder and start talking. And that's exactly what he does. God shows up in a cloud of thunder, and he begins to speak. And if this doesn't make you feel low to the ground, unworthy, cowed, bent, fearful, I don't know what will do it. Now, I didn't do specific verses because God talks for like three chapters or something like that. But I took what I thought were some of the best excerpts from it and combined it and I'm going to read it. Now I'm not qualifying what's, what the better words are coming out of God's mouth. I just know y'all don't want to sit here and hear three chapters worth. But I'm going to read some of it 
and see what you think. Okay? First thing he says would already have had me bent fully prostrate on the ground. He says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? My plans. Meaning, whatever's going on is part of God's plan. God has a plan, right? And who are you to obscure my plans with words without knowledge? Especially for 34 chapters. It broke my brain. Okay, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. Like, okay, I will question you and you shall answer me. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm telling you, right? Imagine that's from a cloud of thunder. That's why I said I didn't want to talk about this chapter like, or this book. Like, what the world is going on? Okay, sorry. <clears throat> my throat is dry. I might take a sip of water in a minute. All right, so brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? All right, so that's all about creation, weather, and everything. And he moves on to talk about animals, which I happen to love, but I cut a lot of that out because it's, very ongoing. But, do we, have we understood all that thus far? No, we don't understand squadiddly of that. Nothing. Okay? Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? Does the hawk, does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? No, sir. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Job spent quite a while justifying himself. Not that he wasn't wrong that he was living upright and righteous. But at the same time, he was questioning God. And God says, would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? No. <laughs> Can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the flirt fury of your wrath. Look at all those who are proud and bring them low. 
Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. That's enough. That is compacted a whole lot. That goes on and on and on. And what is God saying? He's saying that he is the creator. You know, in the beginning of Genesis, it says the earth was dark and void and without form. And he took that chaotic mess and he brought it into order. And he brought it into creation, separating light from darkness, separating water from land. He created everything. He created the land and the sea, the birds and the animals that walk the earth. He created you and me. There's a realm further than that. There's the heavens. There's, what does he say? Have you... Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? There is so much that we don't understand. There is so much that we don't know. How can we even begin to question God? So that's the first thing I, I learned, is that I understand nothing, and I know nothing. Okay? Now it says, like I said, what was an important part was that Job feared the Lord, and he shunned evil. And it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. So if we know and learn anything, it comes from the Lord. He can bring revelation to us, but we're not going to know it on our own. We're not going to know it of 34 chapters of bickering back and forth. Anything we know, anything we understand, any wisdom we have comes from the Lord. Okay? Here's the second thing that I have learned. It is not enough to just be in the room. Are you just in the room? Are you just sitting here in the room? When you're in this room, you're in his presence. But God is personal, y'all. He's got to be right here. He's got to be in your heart. You can't just be in the room in the back. You know, like I said, God's not done with Matt. God's not done with the story. Cassie's living, in, living inside of her purpose right now, believe it or not. As crazy as that sounds. God's got something for Matt, I believe. I don't know what it is. I do know the only thing that we can pray on the situation is for his will to be done. I mean, what else are we going to pray for? Do you know anything? Do you have a perfectly specific prayer that you know to pray in a situation like that? No. So what do we do? We pray for God's will. But let me tell you what didn't work. Ignoring God and just sitting in a room. So if you've, if you've been somebody who's just been sitting in a room and you feel like your mind is being overthrown, then it probably is. You know, we had that sermon in here a while back, a couple times back when I spoke about on that book, there's no such thing as a dragon, where if you ignore the thing growing inside of you, it'll eventually take over your entire house, which is your, your mind, your soul, your body, 
it'll eventually take over, and you will be overthrown, and it is an inevitability that something like this will probably happen. An inevitability. So it's not enough just to be in the room. We have to fear God and shun evil. We have to accept Jesus Christ into our hearts, and we have to walk in obedience. Okay? That one's short and simple and pretty easy to understand. Here's the third thing that I've learned. There is never a reason to blame God with him or without him. Without him is pretty, pretty easy to understand, in my opinion. Like I said, I don't know anything. I understand nothing. But I've sat with the Lord. I've prayed and meditated on this a lot. And it seems pretty basic to me that if you have someone in a situation where they lack God and then something terrible happens, some sort of tragedy happens, some sort of disaster happens, how can you blame God? It's not God's fault. It's a lack of God that was the problem. Okay, when you're married, it's not good enough for one of you to have a good relationship with the Lord and the other one of you just to be a lump on a log, to just be in the room, okay? But what about with God? What if you have a relationship with God and something happens? It's still not okay to blame God. Here's something that Job says, which I find to be kind of funny. When you go into chapter 2 of Job, he still has not cursed God. And he's doing what the Lord said that he would do. The Lord said to Satan, he's not going to curse me. Do what you want, except don't lay a hand on Job himself. Well, Satan returns with his report. He's like, yeah, you were right, but that's because I didn't afflict Job himself. As if that's, like, you can afflict me. If you, if you do something to my family, that's going to be way worse than doing something to me. So that's stupid to begin with. But he says, yeah, well, I mean, if you take his body and do things to it, torture him personally, he'll curse you, you just watch. And God basically says, fine, whatever, it's, it's crazy. He says, all right, well do something, but you can't take his life, okay? So Job's got like all these sores on his body from his head to his toe, I mean, it's just disgusting. It says he's taking broken pieces of clay and just scraping his skin. And so his wife was not killed. His wife's still in the picture. And it says, this is Job 2, 7 through 10. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a broken piece of pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Right. Thank you, honey. <laughs> he replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? <laughs> In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. You know, there's a saying out there. That says um, Christianity or, or maybe religion, but we'll go with Christianity. 
Christianity is the opiate of the masses. It's like, really, that's funny. Because to say that all of my kids could be killed and I could be covered in sores and have to scrape them with pottery and somehow that's within God's plan for me and his purpose, yeah, that sounds a whole lot like a drug to me. An opiate is a drug. How is that an opiate of the masses? That is a massive misunderstanding of Christianity. We've been talking about purposes. Your purpose doesn't have to involve pain and suffering. Like, I've got some purposes in my life right now. I'm feeling called to take part in the young men's lives around here, take them on trips, take them from losers, turn them into real men, you know. Get them in the weight room, try to build them up. Believe it or not, they're closer than they think they are to being in the real world looking for a wife, potentially having kids. So what are we going to do? Just let them be misguided? It's like, no, if, if you feel led to step up and you're a, a good example, like I feel like I am. I'm not saying that proud. I just feel like I'm a good example of somebody who tries to do the right things, walk with the Lord, be a good husband, be a good father. So that's a purpose that I have right now. That doesn't involve any pain or any suffering. But at some point, maybe I will go through some pain and suffering, and maybe it'll be a part of God's life. And I know some of y'all in the room have gone through pain and suffering, and it's a part of God's will for your life. It's not a reason to curse God. It's not a reason to blame God. Christianity is not an opiate of the masses. That's a misunderstanding. It's not just meant to mean that you have a perfectly well-off good life and nothing bad could ever happen to you. And if it does, then God did something wrong. God messed up. That is an exact misunderstanding of his word. And so shall we accept good from God and not trouble? The answer is no. Now, I'm not saying that makes it easy to do, but maybe, just maybe, when something bad happens, when tragedy strikes, maybe, just maybe, it won't be, ba you won't be bad enough to die. You won't be bad off enough to just curse God and die. Right? So, I hope you guys, am, I'm not quite done. I'm, ra I'm wrapping up with this last quote. But I hope I've uplifted you guys this morning. I'm sure you guys are all like, yeah, man, this is awesome. Thanks. All right, it gets even better, trust me. All right, so this is a quote, and I love it, okay? It talks about Jesus. Well, we know what Jesus' purpose was, right? He had umpteen million purposes while he walked the earth. One of them was to bear our sins and to die for them, even though he was totally innocent of them. And that, and that fulfilled a purpose. He bore his cross, something that Dad's been talking about recently. To, he bared his cross. We don't have the same cross as Jesus. That one was his, okay? And it was the greatest purpose ever fulfilled. It was the peak moment in Christianity. It's what we've talked about for thousands of years, thousands of years since, okay? And this quote, I think, sums Christianity and what our walk with Christ might look like perfectly. 
because it could involve pain and it could involve suffering. But that doesn't mean that's your lot in life. You know, Cassie's right now, that's the beginning. The beginning of some pain and suffering, and we've been texting back and forth, and she knows that. She knows she's still walking in God's will and purpose. She knows that he has a plan for her. She's devastated, completely and totally devastated. But I, I firmly believe it's uphill from there, and she'll be happier than she ever was at some point. God restored to Job everything that he had lost and more. So here's what it says. It says, it's no wonder. I don't have that on the screen either, sorry. It's no wonder why the peak moment of our entire religion is a man who was flogged, bloodied, bruised, had a crown of thorns pushed onto his head, despised, spat on, mocked, insulted, hated, hung on a cross by nails like a piece of wood, and crucified in order to save us all from the sins that he was totally innocent of. And right before his death, he finally cries out to God the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This life can be so hard that when God himself came to the earth to walk as one of us, he even draws himself into question. Now, it's not a sin to draw God into question. Job had questions, and it said that he did not sin in that. Now, to curse God, yeah, that's a whole different ballgame. But think about it. Jesus is God incarnate. And even when God incarnate comes down to this earth to fulfill his ultimate purpose, it's so hard on him himself that God himself looks up and says, God, why have you forsaken me? That's, that's pretty crazy. That's pretty wild. Jesus was God. And he asked God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't sin in doing that. But that's just an example of how tough it really can be. Okay, and if you've been through something tough, if you're going through something tough now, if you've been lax ever since something brought you down and you've just kind of been sitting in the room, if you've just kind of been doing nothing, God still has a purpose for you. God needs you to get back up on your feet, okay? It's a feature, not a bug, of Christianity, suffering. That doesn't mean something's wrong. It doesn't mean that there's a problem. It means that it's part of it. And we don't understand why God does what he does. We can't even begin to. You know, I don't deal out purposes. I'm not qualified to. God does all that. So, you know, I hope, I hope you can take something to heart and, and think on it and be moved to walk closer with God. Fear God and shun evil. Lord, we are unworthy to even speak your name. We are unworthy to even enter into your presence, but you allow it because you love us. 
We are nothing but dirt and ashes, Lord. But you love us, and you have grace for us. Lord, and that is enough. You do things we can't even comprehend. You work behind the scenes in ways that we don't even know. We don't understand your creation. We don't understand anything. Lord, so we just bow down before you and submit ourselves to you. Lord, I pray for anybody in the room who, who really just needs to fall low on their face on the ground and cry out to you and say, here I am, use me. To stop bickering and wondering why God, why God did you do what you have done? Why did you cause me pain and suffering? Why is my life the way it is? And instead figure out what pieces are left after the downfall. Figure out what can be picked up and put back together and how their life can be brought back to a higher point than it ever was. Lord, I pray that the people in the room can go in your peace, power, provision, and protection. Have a good week. We thank you for the awesome weather that you've given us recently. You were in control of all of these things, and we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the air that we can even breathe, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.